uh, ladies, gentlemen, children of all ages, friends, welcome to this Fuds on Film Spectacular for the month of October, where we just talk about films that we've seen. My name is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Hello. Yes, we'd hoped to have Craig with you, but unfortunately, um, recent tropical storms and winds <laughs> and such like have uh, debilitated what little network infrastructure he had managed to build up in his new home. So, uh, yes, you'll, you'll have to wait another few days for the retur- triumphant return of Craig Eastman. Uh, until then, you are unfortunately just stuck with us, but we have a great number of films to get through. So, I suppose, in the absence of anything else to do, we may as well just crack right on. Drew, first on the agenda, is Made in France. Yes. Some films have delayed releases due to what is often referred to as production hell, but Nicolas Boukrieff's terrorist thriller Made in France suffered a delayed release due to the hell of real life. Originally scheduled for release in early 2015, it was shelved after the Ile de France terrorist attacks in January 2015, which for those who don't remember exactly which ones those were, they included the attack on Charlie Hebdo's Paris office. It was rescheduled for the 18th of November that year, but pulled again after the Parisian terrorist attacks, including the bombings outside the Stade de France during the Germany versus France football match on the 13th of November. The film wasn't really having a lot of luck, although <laughs> not really relevant compared to the people losing their lives at the time. <laughs> But the public and the distributor seemed to have lost their taste for the film at that time, perhaps understandably, and it was eventually shuffled out on video on demand at the end of the following January. That delay apparently made international news, but to be honest, I'd never heard of it at all until last week when it popped up as a premiere in Sky Movies, and I thought it looked interesting. Half-Algerian, half-French journalist Sam, Malik Zizi, decides to infiltrate the clandestine mosques found in some Paris suburbs to investigate and write about Islamic extremism and jihadism. He finds himself caught up with a small group who begin planning an attack in Paris when their leader Hassan, Dimitri Storoj, returns from Pakistan. Hassan shares tales of training camps in Al-Qaeda, instructs them to shave off their beards, drink if necessary, and largely just to blend into French society. The group, importantly, is disparate in identity, looks and motivation. Sam is red-haired and even for his Algerian heritage, is very European-looking. Dres, Nassim C. Shamed, an ex-criminal, is Arabic and seems angry at the world in general. Sidi, Ahmed Drame, is black, an immigrant from Mali, who resents the French military for the unjustified death of his cousin, but is quiet, thoughtful and really quite uncomfortable with the group's course. Christophe, Francois Civil, is a rich white boy and a simpleton, whose main motivation for joining a jihadist group seems to be to piss his parents off. (laughs) And French Hassan? Well, Hassan's a psychopath. (laughs) Eventually, Sam manages to extricate himself from the group long enough to visit the police, who it seems he has had some contact with previously about his investigation, and manages to inform them about what is happening and to get help. Help is not particularly forthcoming, though. Well, the police blackmail him, because the police are nice like that. (laughs) with threats of being considered an accessory if he does not maintain his cover. So Sam returns to the cell to find out the what, where and when of the target and who is giving the orders. Now, I feel I was sold something of a dummy here, either by the trailer that Sky Movies provided or perhaps by my own mistaken assumptions, but this isn't the more investigative piece I expected, or perhaps wanted. In most respects, it's a fairly straightforward thriller, 
that happens to be set inside a terrorist cell. Common enough, I guess, in the likes of 24, but perhaps less common in cinema. However, it is a fairly engaging, effective and tense thriller that handles its story and revelations well and is crisply edited into a perfect 90 minute running time. What sets it apart, aside from the real life events it mirrored, or possibly even predicted, is that it does give some pause for thought. As the title suggests, this group is homegrown. It does not rely on foreigners, or the apparent harbinger or bringer of all ills, immigrants. Most of the members are French, one is a convert, at least three are, or pass easily for, white Europeans. At least one was raised as a Catholic, and within the group there are tensions and discussions about what is, and is not, women and children for instance, a legitimate target. Director Bukriov wanted to promote some understanding of what motivates people to do this, to reveal that reality is rarely as simplistic as the media or politicians may paint it. His idea was counter, in fact, to that of people like French Prime Minister Manuel Valls, who said that to understand terrorists was to excuse them, proof that intelligence is far from a prerequisite for political office. (laughs) Alas, he's only partially successful, as Made in France is too confined by, and enthralled to, its genre limitations, and isn't aided by the, hopefully wildly inaccurate, refusal of the police to offer Sam sufficient support and a hoary, almost laughable cliché that at some point saves Sam's life. Still, it's worth watching, the acting is good throughout, it's genuinely tense at points, and even while constrained by its genre, it's at least a slightly more cerebral example than many. Yes, likewise I had not heard of this at all, I basically watched this because you watched this, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, I I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised given I had no expectations whatsoever, I thought it was an entertaining little film. If there was any hopes to really shine a light on the motivations that someone would have for becoming a jihadi or anything like that, then it's certainly not achieved any of that. I don't think I really have any great understanding of any of the characters in it or anything about what really drove them. However, in terms of it just being an effective thriller, it is. I enjoyed it wholeheartedly all the way through on that basis. Um, It's a interesting little pot boiler. Unfortunately, the subject is depressingly frequently relevant, as I found out with his attempts to get it released. I don't think that was really a reason to, to have stopped putting it out in the first place, and uh, I think as the director said, he would rather have been predicting these attacks than, uh, <laughs> than reflecting on them after it. I don't have an awful lot more to add about the, the actual terms of the film. I enjoyed it well enough, as you say. I agree, it's all very well acted. It's a reasonably well shot, quite pacey, not particularly original. You could change a few things here and there to be a pretty much standard sort of, I don't know, heist caper sort of thing. You know what I mean? It's got the same mm-hmm. kind of uh, tensions between the, the rival members of the gang kind of looking out for each other, that, that sort yeah, of thing, and trying to get one off each other. But regardless of all that, I just I quite enjoyed it. It's an entertaining little, um, I guess, 90-minute ride. I don't think it was much more than an hour and a half. Uh, yeah, certainly well worth looking out and uh, giving a go to. Yeah, um, certainly if any of our listeners have Sky Movies, then it's been promoted and the last week of the week before it was in the new premiere section so any Sky Movies customers are going to be able to get that quite easily I imagine it'll be available in other things certainly worth checking out it's nice to see a decent genre film you know, that also the fact that it is I think it's in fact 89 minutes it's one minute early as right. shorter than I said earlier it's, mm-hmm. but it is very taut and efficient yeah. while still feeling quite full of material too and that's nice I mention this now because I'm going to mention it on some films that we're going to talk about later 
and a few that I mentioned a lot particularly recently but it does feel there's been a trend in the last it's probably a decade now for the running length of films just to be swelling considerably yes I think the most obvious place is in comedies where a two-hour comedy is not so much unusual nowadays as the norm yeah and it's a very rare film that actually warrants that but it does creep into other genres as well and it, when a film can do a story as efficiently as this without needing to extend its running time beyond an hour and a half then that's really rather welcome yes yes yeah, there does seem to be a trend towards having the running time be the amount of money you hope that it earns in millions so <laughs> the only reason I can think of why they, they keep extending these uh, Marvel films and such like to such mm-hmm. ludicrous proportions when they really don't have any story to back it up Exactly, um, yes. And, Those, at best, are, are vapid yeah. for the most part. And I mean, it's not always that they're not entertaining. Some of them are more successful than others and that you don't notice the time so much. But it's rare that a film... For instance, one of the, the best examples in recent years has been The Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. which, like, I guess, Goodfellas, which is almost as long, but as Scorsese has that deal. Wolf of Wall Street's a three-hour film that feels like a 90-minute film. Yeah. It, at no point in that film does it feel, feel so long, but then you have interminable terrible films like avatar which mm. i think was two and a half days um <laughs> yeah. running time certainly felt like it and that just it seems more and more frequent nowadays and i've lost this to explain why because actually when you look at for instance the marvel films although they have no difficulty filling their their screenings the fact that those films do make so much money you think they would almost want them to be shorter because then they can get in more screenings per day yeah uh, yeah you would think it's, <laughs> I mean, and I don't want the running time of a film to be dictated by its box office potential at all I would like the running time of a film to be dictated by the quality of the editing and the amount of content it has but it's just such a strange trend and I just again I mentioned this because well I feel like I've mentioned it a lot but when the film goes the other way manages to package things really well in a nice taut time like this that it's worth pointing out when so many other films will go the other direction. Yeah, oh, I concur. No one's crying out for a three-hour epic Fast and Furious film, but we'll get oh, there Oh, it's surely someday. only a matter of time, Scott. Yes. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. So we're going to go to another film that was a, a video-on-demand one, I think. Yes. Um, if this got a cinema release, it passed me by. That's Alice Lowe's film, Prevenge. Yes, uh, an odd one this, uh, written, directed and starring Alice Lowe, who's probably best known for her turn in Ben Wheatley's vaguely similarly themed sightseers. She plays Ruth, a heavily pregnant lady, with a few issues. Primarily, her partner's recently died, and her unborn child is instructing her to do things. Well, say things. Murder. It's telling her to murder people. People like creepy pet shop owner Mr. Zabek, played by Dan Renton Skinner, or Tom Davis's pathetic local 70s DJ Dan, why? Well, there is a reason for these seemingly arbitrary people to be targeted, and if you're paying even the slightest bit of attention to the film, you'll know why from the start. However, seeing as the rest of the film seems to believe that it's something that requires a reveal later on, I suppose I'll classify it as a spoiler and leave it alone, other than to say that it's plainly not enough of a mystery to hang a movie from. It's billed as much as a dark comedy as a slasher film, and for me at least, there's a couple of moments where it raised a few wry smiles. Unfortunately, not all that many of them, and good chunks of the mercifully restrained 80-odd minute running time pass without me thinking much of it one way or the other. And 
ultimately, that is about as much as I can say about Prevenge. It's not funny enough as a comedy, it's too weird to work as a conventional slasher, and it's too obvious to hold any mystery. So it kind of falls between three stools, which you'd think by law of averages it ought to have at least laid one cheek on one of them. <laughs> I have no real beef with the execution of Alice Lowe's ideas. The performances, the pacing, the dialogue and so on are all perfectly adequate. And, and in some cases Alice Lowe's delivery of some lines is actually really quite funny. But just the overarching tenet of the piece just doesn't really land with me the way that I'd hoped it might. I'd imagine there's a fairly large pool of horror movie fans, or the horror movie fan adjacent, who will find this right up their alley and take a great deal more from this than I did. I have seen it appear at least as a consideration on a few of the best horror films of the year lists from the genre magazines, but I think more general audiences will most likely not buy what this movie is selling you. Okay, yeah, that's quite interesting then. Uh, this film I had never heard of before. <laughs> In this case, I watched this film because you watched this film uh, for the purposes of having a discussion about it on the podcast. Mm. Now, I suppose there is... One positive I can take from this film in that I had been wondering up until I watched this last week, what is the worst film I've seen this year? <laughs> and now I know. I saw a lot of the reviews of this after I watched it because I was wondering, what do other people make of this? And while I think you may join them, at least having um, gone secondhand smoke, but I think a lot of the people who've been watching this must have been smoking crack. It's very <laughs> Moorish, Drew. It's very Moorish. Because so many people have praised this film and in like more respected publications rather than sort of niche genre stuff, more mainstream things like the New York Times and things like that, praised this film and said that Alice Lowe's performance is excellent, whereas I think Alice Lowe was basically unconscious to all of this film because she was awful. And it's another one of those times like, did people watch a different film from me? <laughs> I think it's fair to say I hate this film. <laughs> it was incredibly boring. It wasn't in any way mysterious. I did not laugh once. I didn't think it was engaging or frightening. It was basically a thing that was there that I decided I needed to get to the end of because I had started it. <laughs> I have no time for this film at all. I I'm not using hyperbole at all when I say it's the worst film I've seen this year. I'm not sure what the other contenders are, apart from, as it happens, another film we'll talk about in this very podcast, but it is awful and I would advise avoiding it if you possibly can. Not that that's going to be difficult. I don't think it's particularly well known. Mm. The only other thing I want to say is that I was very, very irritated by the title because the title doesn't make any sense. I assume the title is something to do with it being revenge from something that's prenatal. If you call something prevenge, that construction of a word clearly means it's sort of revenge in advance of the thing that has happened. Like, I don't know, like to do with a premonition or something. Mm. But the title makes no sense. And that was just like the cherry on the uh, crap icing <laughs> of this film that I despise with every fibre of my being. Avoid it, please. I would mount a strong defence, but I didn't really care about it very much. So <laughs> I'm not going to. Yeah, I had read a few capsule reviews of this and it had been sort of been praised quite, quite highly. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I agree in as much as I don't see them. Obviously, didn't find it quite as distasteful as you did, but um, it didn't really do an awful lot for me at all. So um, much as uh, I feel like for the sake of entertainment, I should mount a, a sterling <laughs> defense of it, I can't really. It's like there was two or three times where I laughed. Um, <laughs> so if, if that's enough to make you want to go and check it out, then you can. But other than that, I suppose we'll just yeah, crack straight on. To the next film that we're going to talk about, which is Miss Sloan. 
also, despite its name, which suggests a Jane Austen adaptation or a genteel character piece akin to Saving Mr Banks, Miss Sloan is a political satire set amongst the lobbyists of Washington DC, starring Jessica Chastain as the titular Sloan, a merciless, driven, cynical and unscrupulous lobbyist who will use anything and anyone at her disposal in order to win. When her lobbying firm is approached by representatives of the gun lobby, it's not entirely clear if they represent the NRA or weapons manufacturers themselves, though I think the latter, in order to get more women into guns and defeat an upcoming firearms registration bill, Sloan, the star of the firm and the profession, unexpectedly leaves. Oh, not because she doesn't believe in the cause, not because she is repulsed by the disgusting number of multiple shootings that occur in her country. As an aside, a three-figure statistic is trotted out that, if even close to reality, is mind-boggling, when in most countries, one multiple shooting is too many. No, she leaves because it's too easy and she wants a challenge. Oh, the moral backbone of these lobbyists. To it, she agrees to join the small, but ethical, if such a thing exists in a profession that the film itself describes as the most morally bankrupt in the world, ethical lobbying firm headed by Mark Strong's Rodolfo Schmidt, and sets about using all of her considerable cunning, guile, and conspicuously absent conscience to pressure senators to agree to vote to pass the bill. There are some very big guns, if you'll excuse the pun, ranged against her, and her opponents, led by former colleague and now enemy Pat Connors, Michael Stilberg, who will use any dirty trick they can, from newspaper hatchet jobs, to investigation into her personal life, to engineering a Senate inquiry into her potentially illegal lobbying practices. The Senate hearing forms the backbone of the film, with most other events presented as flashbacks. And it seems no one will escape from this mess unscathed. Miss Sloan is twisty and devious, much like its characters, but isn't nearly as clever as it thinks it is, especially in its dialogue. As evidence, I present the scene in which Sam Waterston's George Dupont, Sloan's former boss, blackmails John Lithgow's venal, vain and spineless Senator Sperling into beginning the Senate investigation, in which he says to Sperling, Do you know the derivation of the word annihilate? It comes from the Latin, meaning to reduce to nothing. So, what you're saying is that annihilate means annihilate. Thanks. Useful. Well done. Smashing writing right there. That said, it is still pretty entertaining, as long as you don't think too hard about it. Not so much because of the plot, which is as serpentine and tortuous as the genre demands, but because I don't know who we're supposed to care about. The what is easy. Clearly that country requires stronger firearm legislation. We can root for that and hope that Sloan's campaign is successful. But the who? Pretty much everyone in the film is despicable. 90% of the characters, including and especially Elizabeth Sloan, are unscrupulous, devious, amoral scumbags, which makes getting behind any of them rather difficult. There are exceptions, the morally upright Schmidt and Sloan's very ill-used subordinate Esme, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, but while those characters may be more sympathetic, they are also much less interesting and are more there as counterpoints to Sloan rather than compelling characters in their own right. The dialogue-heavy script from first-time screenwriter Jonathan Pereira shows his debt to Aaron Sorkin without approaching his great influence's skill, but is serviceable enough. Indeed, 
for a first-timer, it's impressively accomplished, but definitely helped by a strong ensemble cast and a great performance from Jessica Chastain as the steely lobby bot. It's difficult to think of any bankable actress in Hollywood right now playing this role better. Though its 2 hour 21 minute running time passes quickly enough, there's definitely fat here, perhaps most notably the prostitution subplot, which goes nowhere interesting and only serves to highlight Sloane's lack of time for, or interest in, anything like a relationship or life outside of her work. Which would be fine if it weren't for the fact that the entire rest of the film also serves this purpose. And if, like me, you find underscoring grating, then this film will provide more than a few moments where you will be gritting your teeth. But despite these caveats, it's still enjoyable and rewarding enough for me to recommend it should you see it pop up on your movie delivery service of choice. Yes, this film's fine. Three and a half out of five. Next. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's... No, I, I could have reduced much of my review to that, yes, I suppose. It's the sort of film when I was watching it, I was, I was thinking, I am, I, am, I am entertained all the way throughout this and I am happy. But then when you actually have to sort of think about it when you're going to review it for something like this, it does kind of... Not exactly fall apart at the seams, but it certainly becomes very obvious where the seams are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the sort of film where I was when you're thinking back, it's like, is, is this a film about gun control? Not really. Is it a film about lobbying? Not really. Is it a character piece? Not really. Is it a comedy? Yeah. Not not really. Is it a drama? Not really. Um, it's would, it, it's all of these that... things sort of glued together, and most of that works, and some of it doesn't. I would argue that it's more a character piece than anything else. Uh, just with the caveat that the characters none of the characters human. are nice. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, if it is a character piece, then, then Stone's interesting, I suppose, but because she doesn't really act like a human being, <laughs> it, it's difficult to really have any sort of connection with her. It's at the point where she's such a, a sort of chess master that when it plays its final reveal towards the end, I wasn't quite as annoyed as I was when they played that reveal in the uh, Life of David Gale, if you can remember that far back. Yes, uh, I can. I yes. But it, it's the same sort of trick that it's trying to pull. It's like, well, really? Because that yeah. doesn't seem like it would do anything other than provide an interesting reveal in the last 10 minutes of a film. It doesn't actually help your case in the slightest. Yeah. In fact, it actively hinders it, and I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and uh, That yes. kind of falls apart on any sort of cursory examination. The problem I have with that revelation at the end, it didn't anger me as much, and it's it's foreshadowed earlier on, and I don't know if that took the edge off it, because it's like, this isn't completely stupid, because the character basically said, I was explained that the character was going to do something like this early on, so it wasn't like a Deus Ex Machina or anything like that. It's more that, for that thing to work, Lobbybot, which is what I found myself <laughs> calling the character inside my head very early on, Lobbybot needs to make some sort of sacrifice for that to happen and i just don't buy that she would do that it doesn't match yeah. with any of the rest of the character and it's like it's, it wasn't so much the the actual the twist there this revelation it was the fact that what it requires of the character doesn't match up with how the character has been presented yeah yeah but beyond that yes it's it's a serviceable film it's just it's not brilliant yes yes i agree it's, it's worth putting on your list to catch up with, but it's not worth putting particularly high up on. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think it, a lot of people would enjoy it. Um, just it's not because you know that sort of twisty turny plot and the revelation that brings certain things together, that sort of thing. They're entertaining. I mean, yeah, not yeah. they're it's not high art or anything, but they can be entertaining. And certainly, it's a well-made film and it's well acted. So when you combine that with this 
plot that pulls you in a bit. At least a rewarding watch is not going to resent having seen it, I suspect. Sure, like like you said, it's not quite as smart as it thinks it is, but it's still smart enough to get away with what it's trying to do. So, you know, that's all fine. Yeah. yeah. So then, uh, we're going to move on from Miss Sloan to a movie that makes me sad <laughs> because, because of poor Jackie Chan. What happened to Jackie Chan? Jackie Chan used to be great. And this is the kind of crap he's in nowadays. But uh, I maybe I'm preempting your thoughts, or, or maybe you think it was great, Scott. Perhaps you could tell us about the Lego Ninjago movie. Yes, uh, Lego Ninjago movie. Under most people's radar, the Danish toy building brick company Lego have been building up their own little multimedia empire, thanks to some canny partnerships and tie-ins. There's been, what, 11 million Lego video games, uh, most based on popular movie franchises, such as Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and The Conjuring. As well as a few TV shows. <laughs> no, really. Uh, based on the. Oh, I think you confused as... it with Paranormal Activity. Yeah, that's probably. It's Lego right. Paranormal Activity. That's the. Yeah. <laughs> that's the adult version of their video games. It's all jump scares and two by four blocks, and a few TV shows uh, based on their own ranges, such as Bionicle and most pertinently Ninjago. This marks the third cinema outing after the successful and, uh, to me at least, blandly inoffensive Lego Movie, and this year's much better Lego Batman Movie. Yes. Uh, now, I couldn't tell you what a Ninjago was before seeing this, so while on a quick glance at Wikipedia, it does seem as though it follows on from the series, it's not something that requires any prior knowledge. Ninjago City is a bustling blockopolis where life is given a certain edge by the proximity to would-be evil overlord Garmadon's volcano lair. Garmadon, voiced by Justin Theroux, seeks dominance over Ninjago City because he is evil. He is evil because he seeks dominance over Ninjago City. Such circles we weave. He is, however, continually thwarted in his ambitions by the group of teen ninjas and mechs that range from sweet to tubular, led by the green ninja Lloyd, voiced by Dave Franco. With these ninjas operating anonymously, neither the city at large nor Garmadon himself knows that the kid that's thwarting Garmadon's plans is his own son. Shock. Horror. Still, the city at large does... Shockeroony. Does... (laughs) Still, the city at large does treat Lloyd Garmadon with this disdain that becomes the son of a would-be oppressor, much to Lloyd's anguish. Still, he's boistered by support of his sensei Master Wu and his fellow troops Cole, Jay, Kai, Naya and Zayn, voiced by Jackie Chan, Fred Armisen, Kumail Nanjiani, Michael Pina, Abby Jacobson and Zach Woods, respectively. Uh, one day, Garmadon tires of constantly losing and creates the ultimate stompy mech, impervious to the ninja team's weapon. You'd think that would be the first option. But this forces a desperate Lloyd to use the ultimate weapon, much against Master Wu's wishes, which turns out to be a relatively harmless laser pointer, but just as Thistle Whistle summoned great beasts in the family nest, or Godzuki (laughs) could summon Godzilla, a mighty beast appears. Meowthra, who lays waste to the sweet tubular mechs and swathes of the city in the supercilious, aloof way that only a cat can. Disappointed, Master Wu sends the ninja team on a quest for the ultimate, ultimate weapon to control this rampaging beast, a search that will see them challenged, grow closer, and also have Lloyd unexpectedly reach an understanding with his father. Uh, it has generally had mixed to poor reviews, although I rather wonder if that's more due to the proximity to the admittedly much better Lego Batman film than anything inherently wrong with this film. Spacing them out would have perhaps yielded better Rotten Tomato scores, but probably not by much. It's not the sort of film that's ever going to review well, given the unavoidable similarity to the other Lego films. That said, and from what I gather, <laughs> distinct from what Drew's going to say about it, um, I enjoyed this more than the original Lego movie, which was fine, but with some confusing messaging. Uh, this plays on rather more conventional themes of teamwork and self-belief, and it's a perfectly fine story for this sort of thing, aided by some solid voice work. 
more interesting for me at least is that it's, I actually found it quite funny, sorry, uh, with some irreverent lines and tangents that made me laugh more or less all the way throughout, which is very much took me by surprise. Uh, Justin Theroux in particular nailing the delivery and Zach Woods definitely a normal teen and not a robot at all Zane being something of a scene stealer. Film of the Year candidate? Well, no, obviously not. But I enjoyed the silly kids flick more than a heck of a lot of this year's more highly regarded works, and it's worth, for my view at least, sticking on your catch-up list for its appearance on the home formats, if not necessarily something that demands you traipse down to the cinema to catch it. Now, Drew, why don't you tell me how wrong I am? <laughs> yes, well, I was thinking it's quite uncommon for our opinions to be quite so divergent. Perhaps it's interesting when they are. I've been on a lot of cold medication, <laughs> so that helps. But for me, this film is a contender for film of the year if you add the adjective worst in there and in fact had i not already seen prevenge probably would be the worst film of the year this is how much i do not like this film uh, it's strange I, I disagree with almost everything you say because i thought everything about this film was bad particularly justin theroux as lord garmadon whose delivery i found incredibly flat now again maybe as you feel so different about it the problem is me i don't know i rather deeply disliked the first Lego film. Not as much as this. Uh, the Lego Sermon, as I believe I referred to at the time, because it was one of the preachiest things I've ever seen. But it did have a few funny moments. It had some inventiveness, and I'm going to come back to that. And it had Will Ferrell, who did the, the similar sort of role to Justin Theroux here, but with considerably more pizzazz. And to come back to the creative thing I mentioned, though, because the first Lego film... Like Lego Batman, and Lego Batman I really, really, really enjoyed, in fact. I thought it was tremendously funny, uh, and Will Arnett was fantastic in it. It's basically the Will Arnett show, isn't it? But yeah, there's nothing uh, wrong with that. That's, that's perfectly what I want to see, yeah. It was funny, and it was irreverent, and it was making fun of the sort of really dour Christian Bale-style Batman, mm-hmm. um, and I thought it was really funny. And it did have the same sort of messages in there that this film and the Lego Sermon has, I don't know whether because the surroundings were better or um, it was just more artfully done in the first place. The They didn't seem as sort of much like they were hitting you over the head with those lessons of friendship, etc, etc. Lego Batman is fantastic. Lego Sermon, uh, don't much care for. But in both of those films, there was a point that, point in them being Lego films. They were about Lego and how you could build things with Lego and be inventive with Lego. You know that toy where you're inventive and build things? Whereas Lego Ninjago, the fact that everything was Lego was basically irrelevant. I don't think at one single point in this film does anybody actually build anything with Lego, mm-hmm. which seems strange to me. Even like the whole point of the first film is about imagination and being a master builder and, and be able to see the potential of things and put things together and then it had all those creative moments where the the characters were at the last moment, oh we're, we're about to die what are we going to do oh quick I, I, can, I know I can use this and put this thing together and build this thing and the Lego Batman film was the same Lego Ninjago has none of that and there are a couple of new things that are built but largely they are done off screen as in we've created this thing here you go okay and so there's absolutely no inventiveness the story is insipid. Jackie Chan is utterly wasted. The film can't decide whether it's Chinese or Japanese, which um, maybe doesn't really matter because they're all plastic toys anyway, but it, it grated on me slightly. I hate this film. and uh, Really, that's 
don't know, it's twice I've said this. It's rare for me to feel actual hatred towards a film, but it just it was just so bad. It wasn't funny, it wasn't entertaining, I had no interest in anything that was happening, and I just wanted it to end. But uh, because maybe I'm stupid like this, if I've started a film, I must see through to the end. Uh, otherwise, I would have turned it off. Yeah. I don't know what else to say other than that you should not watch this because it is a terrible thing and it should not exist. <laughs> I thought it was the funniest film I've seen this year. Uh, had the most <laughs> inventive sequences. Uh, the, the only thing I'd say is uh, it, it, perhaps it's more reflecting the, the Lego that's coming out these days where, to be honest, there's everything's prescribed. It's all and you can't really do much yeah. with a lot of it. So maybe it's more there. But no, you're right. It doesn't have any of the... If this wasn't Lego Ninjago, it could just be called Ninjago with generic CG things. It would be exactly the same film. Um, it's not really taking advantage of the Lego property in that way, as I guess. As I, guess uh, I guess that's probably a, a fair thing to say about this. Now, I don't know if that's the same in the uh, series or not. I've not watched it because, well, look, I'll, I'll watch a film that is targeted at six-year-olds because uh, we, we do a film podcast, but I'm not going to watch a TV show that's targeted at six-year-olds just to, just to uh, back up that review. So, again, it's another film I can't really go to bat for because I just I enjoyed it well enough. And um, yeah, I did not regret seeing it, and I thought some bits of it were quite funny indeed. So I'll, I'll let that away. That's not much of a response apart from that you thought it was funny, and I'm uh, sorry, I thought it was funny and you didn't. So there, that's <laughs> all we can really say about it. Yeah, plot is wildly uh, unoriginal. It's all playing on some very stock tropes uh, and so on. And it's, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's clearly targeted at a very young audience. So that's probably where it's coming from, I guess. So yeah, yeah. No, I'm not I'm not necessarily recommending this to everyone in a general audience, yeah. but I think you can. It's, it, if you have to watch this along with your kids, I think it will be perfectly fine entertainment. And um, yeah, let's like say there's a there's a few very irreverent bits that must only be surely targeted in adult audiences, which made me laugh a little bit. Particularly this, it was those strange little video sequences that dropped in pretty much out of nowhere, which caught me by surprise and made me chuckle quite a bit. Yes, I enjoyed it. You didn't, Celebes. <laughs> I would say though. Um... And I meant to mention Cell, but I only just remembered it now. That one of the reasons I thought perhaps that explains what well, it's in my eyes that it doesn't work. This film has six credited screenwriters and seven story credits. Yeah, I didn't notice that. That's quite too many. Few. Quite a few. It also has six producers, but maybe that's not so uncommon if you have some of those are executive producers as well. But three directors, six story credits, seven six screenplay credits, seven story credits. I think that explains a lot of why this is such a mess. There's no coherence to it at all. Well, obviously you think there's more coherence than I do, but one of the rare strong disagreements we've had on this podcast, I think, Scott. Yes. It's normally Craig that's wrong, but uh, yeah. yeah yes, yes. Craig is often wrong. <laughs> and since he since he's not here to defend himself, we can say that all we like. <laughs> so next up on the chopping block is the Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Drew, would you like to give us a bit of an info on that? I will do. 2014's Kingsman Secret Service was fairly well regarded. A James Bond gentleman spy spoof with some of the sensibilities of director Matthew Vaughn's earlier film Kick-Ass. It was thoroughly entertaining, though admittedly didn't fare quite so well on a second viewing. Funny and action-packed. While not quite as subversive as it could, and perhaps should have been, it poked fun at classism and even had a go at a Pygmalion-style storyline. Uh, one of the few things, though, that a lot of people collectively didn't seem to care for was the sexism, and, especially, the crass, puerile, anal sex references that marred the film's final act. So, naturally, Kingsman the Golden Circle doubled down on that crap, 
and from the beginning too. I should never really have put my drum away because I need to keep getting out to beat it again because I'm going to measure running time again. <laughs> it also increased the running time to nearly two and a half hours and boy does it feel it. A throwaway action spoof has no business being that long. A lot of this is due to overextended self-indulgent action sequences and the utterly inexplicable need to give Elton John something to do other than the preferred thing for Elton John to do which is to not be in the film. <laughs> so what is in the film other than Elton John? Well, the action begins with our hero Exeonman, Taron Egerton, now an established kingsman, being attacked by one of the failed recruits from the first film, Charlie, Edward Holcroft, who is now a cyborg, because, well, of course he is. In, in what should be, but somehow isn't, an exciting car chase through London, Exe and Charlie fight inside the confines of a moving black cab. Exe finally gets the best of Charlie, but not before a bit of Charlie's arm hacks the Kingsman network through the cab's computer. Yes. With the location identity of all Kingsman members now known, Charlie's boss launches missile strikes against them all, with only Exe and Mark Strong's Merlin surviving, while killing off the only female Kingsman agent so that this can continue to be a very sexist affair. It at least also kills off Michael Gambon early doors, which is good as Michael Gambon is shit and is not a fit replacement in any way, shape or form for Michael Caine. At a loss, Exe and Merlin discover that they have a not retrofitted at all, no siree counterpart organisation in the US called Statesman, despite these two top-class intelligence-gathering organisations seemingly being unaware of the existence of each other, and this after the fact that the Kingsmen have literally just saved the world from hundreds of corrupt politicians and heads of state and the world's richest man. So maybe they're not so great at the whole intelligence gathering thing. <laughs> but I digress. Well, not really, because I'm not going to bang on a bit more of this sort of stuff soon. But <laughs> The statesmen, who operate out of a whiskey distillery in Kentucky, and to fetishised cowboy hat-wearing, drawling, boot-lace tie-wearing, good old boy America, as much as the Kingsmen fetishise proper English gentlemanness, are, of course, bigger, better and richer. They also happen to have an amnesiac Harry Hart, Colin Firth in their care who, despite being shot point-blank in the face by Valentine in the previous film, is alive and well thanks to Ginger Ale, Halle Berry, and her, and I wish that I was joking, magic bubble wrap. While Eggs and Merlin try to help Harry recover his memories, they must also investigate the Golden Circle, the mysterious organisation responsible for the destruction of Kingsman. The Golden Circle, it turns out, is a drug cartel, run by Poppy, Julianne Moore, from her base in a nostalgic, idealised recreation of 1950s America in a rainforest in Cambodia, replete with those bastions of kitsch Americana, robot dogs, robot beauticians and... Elton John? This film sounds stupid. <laughs> There's a reason for that, Scott. Would you like to take a guess as to why? <laughs> this film's stupid. Yes, there we go. Poppy, it seems, runs THE drug cartel, somehow having managed to gain a world monopoly on all drug types, but is pissed off and, frankly, petulant. She's largely one step away from stamping her foot on the floor and saying it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair for the first half of the film, that she doesn't get the credit she deserves for being a successful businesswoman. Just because her business is illegal and involves death and extortion and organised crime and mass murder. So her obvious course is to hold the world to ransom 
by impregnating all of her drugs, from ecstasy and marijuana to crystal meth and cocaine, with a genetically engineered virus that makes their users first delirious and uncontrolled, then living statues for a few days, before finally they burst. Actually burst. This whole film is basically a live-action cartoon, with matching plotting and performances. This virus can be cured instantaneously by the antidote she has stockpiled all around the world ready for drone delivery the moment that the President of the United States of America, Bruce Greenwood, signs some bill into law. I think probably entitled the Drugs Are Now Legal and Poppy Adams is the Bestest Yay Act, except he's not having it. Instead, happy to allow all of the junky scum to perish and storing them in preposterous towers of cages inside sports stadiums until they all die, allowing him to win the war on drugs. So it's up to Exy, Merlin, Harry and Whiskey, Pedro Pascal, to find Poppy's base, get the antidote to the victims, and free Elton John from his musical slavery. It is all very, very, very stupid. <laughs> and sadly, unlike the first film, not very entertaining. Aside from the gratuitously hyper-violent, unnecessarily long church fight, the action sequences in the first film were entertaining and vigorous. In the Golden Circle, they're, they're largely tedious, and sometimes involve Elton John. While Sam Jackson's world-conquering plot in Kingsman the Secret Service may have been of the Bond supervillain sort, it was at least not entirely ridiculous, and the hints at exploiting people who give up freedoms or control to Silicon Valley in exchange for free crap was timely and valid, even if that film was not the place to actually explore them. But the sequel? Jeebus! Cyborg arms and robot dogs and other technologies that may as well have been magic. Vaughn and fellow screenwriter Jane Goldman looked at what they did in the first film and turned the dial all the way up to, oh, would you look at that, I turned the dial so hard the knob came off of my hand. <laughs> so now, while we have no idea just how stupid our film is, can we discuss introducing Elton John? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's obvious that that... That this character's presence bothers me. Just a little. Um, I assume that is probably because one of the writers is a huge fan and maybe met him once at a party and decided to indulge his or herself. The whole thing is a ghastly nightmare. <laughs> the Golden Circle seems to have a strong drugs are bad and key message, while at the same time promoting the consumption of the never has been a problem ever alcohol as an alternative something it actually goes so far as to spell out in one scene. In the first, it clearly also had a US president who was meant to be then-President Barack Obama, whose head gloriously exploded at the end. But the president in this case is wholly fictional, despite the absolute douche canoe that is the worst president in US history being currently in office. But we should probably expect no less from a Fox film, and one that, in between all of the exposition scenes, uses Fox News for more exposition. None of the Fox News presenters, of course, suffer from the drug-delivered virus because Fox presenters are wholesome and good. <laughs> this film. <laughs> I will accept, though, that I may be reading far too much into this, since the rest of the film so, seems so ill-thought-out and the whole thing is really just soulless product, not cinema. But as I'm forced to share a planet with Donald Trump, I'm in a perpetual state of irritation. <laughs> ah, another... Massive problem in the Golden Circle is the acting, in that there 
really isn't much of it. Colin Firth, a fine actor, seems genuinely unenthused, dismayed and dispirited by this lacklustre sequel, and could generously be described as phoning it in. Julianne Moore, a tremendous actor, gives the film far more than it deserves, but her poorly written role gives her very little to work with and, well, she largely phones it in. Jeff Bridges, a similarly great actor, seems to realise he's being paid for some crap in which no one cares much about the acting, so doesn't so much phone it in as use some sort of text-to-speech service to do the job for him. <laughs> then there's Channing Tatum, who, when this character isn't asleep, seems to be so anyway, and Taron Egerton, who I actually find quite engaging and likeable, but who really, really can't emote. Which brings us on to Hilly Berry, who similarly can't emote, or for that matter, act. At all. <laughs> and Keith Allen, who can't act. And Elton John, who we wish wouldn't, because Elton John can barely Elton John, let alone act. The few saving graces come from Emily Watson and Bruce Greenwood, but in small and largely thankless roles, and the great and professional Mark Strong, whose Scottish accent, fortunately, continues to be as convincing as it was back in the original Low Winter Sun, saving us from that particular ignominy. It seems that the idea for Kingsman was very much a one-shot deal, but I fear that we'll see another sequel in a couple of years. If you want to help evade that possibility, do what I wish I had done and don't watch The Golden Circle. Unless that is, you happen to be 12, in which case this film has been tailor-made for you. Apart from, I'm quite sure, leaving you wondering who or what an Elton John is. So, knock yourself out if you're 12. Ooh, what fresh hell is this? I've not seen the first one, I didn't see this one, uh, but it did remind me of something that I meant to bring up during Miss uh, Sloan, which was that one of the great failings of that film was its uh, denial of another glorious uh, Mark Strong hairpiece opportunity. Uh, what's the situation uh, in this Unfortunately, film? as in the um, as in the first Kingsman, Mark Strong is bald, um, and I saw... Unacceptable, Drew. Unacceptable. He was in a film with Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, maybe last year called Grimsby. Oh, um, brothers um, Grimsby, in which yeah. he was also bald, and I rather fear that now he's embracing his baldness and is showing the wigs, which is depriving us of um, a great opportunity for <laughs> tremendous amusement. Quite frankly, um, so I, I rather fear that the, the days of the great Mark Strong wig um, are gone. Which um, we should have a little, a little um, sorrowful moment for, I think, for the passing of, of <laughs> such great um, wickedness. <laughs> We've suffered so much, Drew, in this world. That was the one <laughs> ray of light that I had remaining to me. It was Mark Strong in a silly wig, and denied. Yes, it's a sad, sad thing when when such a, a thing should come to pass. <laughs> Although I mean, I honestly had more entertainment of talking about thinking about Mark Strong's wigs than I had for most of this film. <laughs> which may be a little harsh when it's, as opposed to the two other films in this podcast we talked about that I clearly really really didn't like there are bits of the Kingsman that are still entertaining and there are certainly some funny moments and some of the action pieces um, if we ignore the ludicrous nature of the fight in the Monte Bianchi um, cable car there are some still decent action sequences in this and it's there are entertaining moments it's just a sequel that doesn't really need to exist and there's too much of the rest mm. of it that is stupid or boring or offensive 
to really warrant seeing the film at all. Too unbalanced, yeah. unfortunately. It's a pity because uh, the original was, it was pretty throwaway, but it was funny. Um, and the, I mean, the, the relationship in particular between Taron Egerton and Colin Firth's character was actually quite warm, which was a surprise in that type of film. So, I mean, you can see why they made a sequel, but they just don't seem to have had any good ideas for one, which is why we get half an hour of Elton John, I guess. Or we don't, as the case may be. Not that I have any particular beef with Elton John. I, I always had the impression that he's a bit of a bit of an arsehole, really. But I just... Elton John's not an actor, and there, there was no reason for him to be in this film other than that it's, it's some yes. sort of self-indulgent whim of one of the writers or something. It doesn't add anything. And you could have had an actually seen set to a piece of Elton John music without Elton John having been in the film. You know, that that's how music works. So. Or ideally, not even that. Yeah. So the issue is not... Yeah, man. There's only a handful of Elton John songs I, I'm particularly interested in, but... It's not really the Elton John's issue, it's the fact that there's some sort of celebrity cameo in here and it's well, it goes far beyond the bounds of cameo in a way that yeah. not just adds nothing to the film, actually substantially detracts from it. Yeah. But the problem, the film has other problems, so that's perhaps the least of it, but it, it was the funniest <laughs> one to repeatedly talk about. <laughs> but um, as you have not seen it, I have not seen the first one, there's not really a great deal more discussion we can have on this. So let's move on to film about a boy who has a bear and a donkey and a tiger and a pig and a kangaroo. Although I'm guessing they don't feature much in Goodbye Christopher Robin Scott. Yes, uh, Dom Hall Gleason's A.A. Milne returns from World War One, A Changed Man, both physically due to injuries sustained at the Battle of the Somme and mentally with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and an understandable disdain for the whole process of war itself. Finding a return to his pre-war London life of an acclaimed playwright, and also writing for Punch magazine to be a bit too overwhelming, he and his family decamp to the country. Said family by this point includes Margot Robbie's Daphne Milne and their eight-year-old son, Christopher Robin, played by Will Tilston. Country life soon becomes too boring for Daphne, who flits back off to London, leaving Christopher Robin to the care of his nanny, Olive, played by Kelly MacDonald as is the way of the obnoxiously rich. Meanwhile, A.A. is struggling to start the anti-war polemic he'd hoped to write out here in the sticks, and gets increasingly frustrated about it, to the point of taking it out verbally on his son and nanny because he is a frightful <laughs> douche clown. He is further inconvenienced when Olive's mother is taken gravely ill and she must leave to care for her, which means that A.A. must reduce himself to caring for his child and staying around him for more than half an hour for what seems to be the first time since he was born. In a shocking development, it turns out that they enjoy their playtime together, walking around the local woods, with C.R. inventing stories starring his stuffed teddy bear, depressed donkey, and tiny piglet. Stories which inspires A.A. to write the Winnie the Pooh stories. So what is he basically saying is, A.A. Milne plagiarised his own son? <laughs> Pretty much, um, and worse. Um, yes, uh, so he writes these books and garners immediate success with them. Their innocent charm credited as helping the country rediscover joy after the war, which must surely be an indication of how bad things were. Have you ever read any of these? Crikey. Well, the, the depressed uh, donkey brought joy. But I kind of like yes. Eeyore, but it's really good. <laughs> of course, once it's discovered that there's a real live Christopher Robin, a media circus ensues, and because they are awe-inspiringly <laughs> dreadful people, uh, they're happy to exploit this frenzy for maximum profit. 
This poo show reaches a deer when, on a promotional tour of America, they're out of the country for CR's birthday. However, they make sure to call and wish him all the best. Live. On radio. After some harsh words from Olive, AA finally sees that they've been exploiting their child, just in time to pack him up and send him off to boarding school until he's an adult. I know the past, and the posh, are a foreign country, and they do things differently there, but surely this just seems callous at any time. Anyhow, we skip over some years of relentless bullying and meet a now 18-year-old CR, plays by Alex Louth, ready to go off to World War II against his father's wishes, for, well, very obvious reasons. Now, there are things in isolation to like about Goodbye Christopher Robin. Firstly, and most superficially, it often looks gorgeous, uh, full of bucolic sun-dappled picture postcard shots of the English countryside, and the cast uniformly acquit themselves well, Gleason and MacDonald in particular. In general, the mechanics and execution of the film, writing, story, pacing, craft services, etc. All very well handled, no real complaints. However, it suffers greatly from being a film full of just awful people doing objectively awful things. They might not see quite how awful they're being, but they nonetheless are awful, and that makes it difficult to engage with them, the film on its own terms. Instead, I engage with it on my terms, which are that posh people are weird. (laughs) to the point of being inhuman, and this film feels like a documentary about badly programmed, malfunctioning Westworld hosts doing everything possible to give their kid grievous psychological damage. Uh, Falls into the same category as Blue Jasmine did for me a few years back. On most levels, the film itself would probably have to dispassionately say is good, but the characters it contains are so horrible that it's just roundly repellent. And so goes Goodbye Christopher Robin, an annoying experience that makes me yearn for the good old days of class (laughs) warfare. Also, Winnie the Pooh is a garbage bear for garbage people. Come back when you're Paddington. Or Super Ted. Or those ones that Timothy Treadwell was talking to. Is Timothy Treadwell the guy that got eaten by grizzly bears? Yes, you might not appreciate my Werner Herzog references in every single podcast that we do, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. I have no problem with Werner Herzog references, Scott. Particularly when they can be as awesome as if we can find any way to work into every podcast something about a monkey straddling a goat and riding off into the sunset. (laughs) Would like to take issue with with one thing, Scott. Hmm? Super Ted. Really? Winnie the Pooh is a bit crap, but Super Ted, no. You're I mean, spot sure, on. He's, he's no banana man, but... <laughs> but you're on much, much firmer ground with Paddington. Because if there's going to be some sort of magical talking bear coming out of a story set in London, then Paddington's your bear. like marmalade, yes. Yes. Um, if we're going to go down the, the roads of realism, then this complete lack of a Peruvian accent for a Peruvian bear always grated on me slightly as a child. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have not seen this, so I can't really add much, but... I, I don't really care to. Um, <laughs> no. It, it sounds like they're just not pleasant people doing um, things like not bothering to be a parent to their child, which yes. always ticks me off. If what you want to do for a couple of hours is feel really sorry for a kid, then I suppose this is as good a way of doing it as any. Uh, but yes, as a film, no, not enjoyable in the slightest. Posh people, man. Just don't get them. Just don't get them. I say we take off and nuke the entire posh people from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> You're going to wipe them out, right? Not study them. Wipe them. <laughs> Not bring back. <laughs> yes. I, there's, there's, a very, there's a way to forge some tenuous relationship between aliens and Ridley Scott and Blade Runner to lead into the next film that we're going to talk about, but I can't really be bothered doing it. So, um, Drew, would you like to talk about Blade Runner 2049? 
I, in fact, Scott, um, your terrible introduction aside, would love to talk about Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> maybe you could have linked it, though, by saying that Ridley Scott wasn't involved with Aliens, which was a good thing. Um, and Ridley Scott's barely involved with Blade Runner 2049, which is also a good thing. <laughs> but, uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, as any of you who have listened to the Top Films podcast with which we began this FUDS and Film venture will know, I have not so much a love-hate relationship with Blade Runner as a bafflement-compulsion relationship. <laughs> Appreciating the visuals and the world, but largely left cold by everything else, while still, for some reason, being unable to stop periodically rewatching it. It's undeniably and objectively a massively influential film, but... Unlike certain weird people around these parts, who may or may not have a name that rhymes with vague, I realise that proclaiming it the best film of the 80s is borderline insanity. That may well be the hill that Craig dies on, and if so, I'm uh, willing to help. So, As such, when production finally began last year on a sequel, after decades of rumours, false starts, and radiantly Scott doing his best to ruin the original film and its mysteries, I had neither the trepidation nor the excitement that many fans will have felt at the news. Instead being left with my usual ennui and dismay that Hollywood was once again making a sequel instead of something fresh and new. But the presence of Ryan Gosling, direction by Denis Villeneuve, and perhaps most importantly for a sequel to a film so visually distinctive, the great Roger Deakins' director of photography, I had some hope. Before going to see Blade Runner 2049, I watched Blade Runner again, but worryingly, for the first time in more than a decade, I didn't enjoy it incrementally more in my recent, most recent viewing. Indeed, my enjoyment of and appreciation for Ridley Scott's 1982 classic took a massive step backwards, and I once again found myself thinking, hmm, this is not a good film. I do not like this film. I do not like it, Sam I am. So that was a wonderful place to be in before watching the sequel. With all of which is to say, really, I didn't really have many expectations for this film. And maybe that was to my benefit. We'll see. The original Blade Runner is ostensibly a noir detective story, but one that largely left the detective element out of it. Blade Runner 2049 once again has an LAPD detective as a central character, but from the get-go actually has him do some detective work. And what a difference that makes to the engagement of the story. Said detective is Kay. Ryan Gosling, like Deckard with Warhammer Blade Runner, but a known replicant, one of the Nexus 8 models which an, with an open-ended lifespan that were created after the events of the first film and before the blackout, a mysterious week-long power outage that saw vast amounts of electronic records wiped out. The film begins with Kay visiting Sapper Morton, Dave Bautista, a rogue replicant, in order to retire him. After doing this, his survey of Morton's farm reveals a mysterious box buried beneath a tree. The box turns out to be a coffin of sorts, containing the remains of a woman who seemingly died in childbirth. The twist being that the woman was a replicant, the identity of whom I won't mention, but is unlikely to come as a surprise to anyone. This revelation, that replicants are able to reproduce, produces two very different responses in two influential individuals. Kay's superior, Lieutenant Joshi, played by Robin Wright, believes that the knowledge that the already physically and intellectually superior replicants can have offspring will lead to a war with humans. While Jared Leto's Neander Wallace, who took over what was left of the Tyrell Corporation, believes that replicant reproduction is the key to his company's production yield problem. 
Joshi orders Kay to track down and kill the child, a task which leaves Kay decidedly uneasy, while Wallace's operative, the formidable replicant Love, Sylvia Hooks, watches Kay from a distance, waiting for him to find his target so that she can deliver him or her to Wallace to allow him to unlock Tyrell's final secret. Kay's investigation takes him to the laboratories where replicant memories are crafted, an orphanage in the debris-strewn ruin of what was once San Diego but is now a rubbish dump, looking like a vast city-sized version of Star Wars trash compactor, and to the radioactive ruins of Las Vegas, where he meets an unexpected figure from the past, who is Deckard, who is obviously Deckard, and who was always going to be Deckard. Who is Elton John? <laughs> Sadly, while the film tries to keep the identity of Kay's person of interest in the Nevada Desert a mystery, marketing and promotion, perhaps necessarily, ruined that particular revelation. Pity. Along the way, Kay will discover what happened to the child, and why, and question what it is to be human, and raise questions about free will, the meaning of life, individuality and purpose, and all of that compelling philosophical stuff that was both the crux and most interesting part of the original film. So I suppose now is the part where I talk about if it was any good, particularly in light of how ambivalent at best I am about the original. Oh dear. Dear, dear, dear. Well, yes, it is indeed very good. <laughs> uh, it is a splendid film. It's not without its faults, which I will come to, but I thoroughly enjoyed Blade Runner 2049, and vastly more so than I ever did the 1982 film. Firstly, and appropriately because the original film's visual style was so striking, and with its lasting influence in legacy, 2049 looks amazing. It's resplendent. It's one of the most attractive films I've seen in a long time. It's a more visually varied film, though has plenty of shots of the grimy, run-down LA that Deckard inhabited. But pretty much every scene and every locale is striking, from Kay appearing through the mist at Morton's farm, to the clinical white settings of the memory fabrication laboratory, to the dust-strewn wasteland of Las Vegas and the oppressive confines of the Tyrell Wallace Pyramid. I think I could easily just turn the sound down and just look at this film. Next, the story because this time there is one, and certainly much more substantially so than Blade Runner. The detective story is engaging, and helped by a similarly engaging performance by Gosling, whose at first unaffected, almost emotionless performance begins to make sense, and then develop and expand as his character does. There are twists, and director Villeneuve and screenwriters Hampton Fancher and Michael Green provide plenty of clues and hints for us to generate theories as to the who's, what's, why's and wherefores of the thing, while keeping us off balance and in the dark enough for us to never be quite sure of anything. I do have one problem with the story though, but it's a biggie, and it is that the final moment of the film, more or less, and by more or less I mean pretty much completely, undermines the entire reason established earlier for that character's previous actions. So, best not to dwell on that too much, I reckon. Acting-wise, it's a mixed bag, but Gosling anchors the film, and that helps take the edge off anything less than stellar. Like, for instance, Edward James Olmos's cameo as Gaff, in which, since Blade Runner, he seems to have forgotten A, that Gaff had an accent that wasn't his natural accent, and B, how to act at all. <laughs> But perhaps the biggest and most welcome surprise is that Harrison Ford has remembered acting. I think, though I hesitate to say it since it seems so unlikely, that he may actually have been enjoying himself in this film. Shocking, I know, but I think it's a genuine possibility. 
Certainly, old Descartes is considerably warmer than young Descartes, who really was a bit of a cold fish in the first film, and also really was a bit of an arsehole. I think this is the only time in the last decade, and perhaps longer, that I have seen Harrison Ford act and seem to enjoy doing so, aside from his quite engaging and surprising performance in Morning Glory. Robin Wright is solid enough as Gosling's superior, I guess, but is a little underserved by the script, though nothing like so much as Sylvia Hooks, whose character Love becomes a badass ninja chick with a bad attitude. For reasons? That type of character is really very tiresome, largely because it's not a character. Though when it comes to acting, nothing, and nothing is as bad, as egregious, or as downright unwelcome as this film's Rogue One Grand Moff Tarkin moment, where we are dragged against our will into the uncanny valley to meet a digital creation every bit as unconvincing and creepy as that Peter Cushing abomination. <laughs> While it had been worrying me, um, I kept my drum out for this because I'm going back to the running time issue, <laughs> it has been the running theme of this podcast, While it had been worrying me, I will say that the 2 hour 44 minute running time passed considerably more readily than I expected it would, though I wonder how much that will remain the case in any subsequent viewings. But there is still plenty that could be trimmed from that, perhaps most obviously any scene featuring Jared Leto. Not that Leto is particularly bad, more that he's not particularly anything. For all the much-publicised stories of the tedious and tiresome Leto fitting himself with opaque contact lenses so that he would, like his character, be unable to see, I am left wondering what the point was. As Scott there recently observed on Twitter, his motivation and personality could best be described as has weird eyes. That's that Scott, the one I'm talking to, not Ridley Scott, in case anybody's confused. Indeed, so inconsequential is the character that Leto's entire role could have been reduced to a line or two in the mouth of Sylvia Hook's love about her boss wanting the child for business reasons. That would have done it and you wouldn't have had to have Jared Leto at all. I have a few other gripes, including the, uh, let's say, over-enthusiastic Foley work, which gives Dave Bautista steps like the footfalls of doom and punches between Gosling and Ford that sound like a wrecking ball hitting an elephant as well as some dubious product placement. Wait, wait, wait. How do you know what a wrecking ball hitting an elephant sounds like? What have you been doing with our funds? Um, Let's not answer on air. Uh, Yes, I I would like to incriminate myself. We don't have the Fifth Amendment or anything like that in this country, so best just to say nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, product placement, no. While science seen in the original is still present in the sequel and its alternate future, Pan Am, for example, and there is coke advertising, and really, it'd be weird not to have coke advertising in any realistic city setting. There are a couple more egregious examples. First, there's the prominent Sony logos. Sony at least still a functioning company, and expected as this is partly distributed by Sony and produced by Columbia. But Sony just can't ever stop themselves in this regard. And second, there's Atari. Yes, Atari. Now, I know that there were Atari logos in the original film, and it makes sense that in this timeline that Atari would still exist, especially given the apparent technological stagnation that has happened in the 30 years between Blade Runner and 2049. But Atari's logo is here, and this isn't conjecture, this is confirmed fact. Atari's logo is here to paid for product placement, and it's grating when the film more or less stops for a moment to ensure you see the massive Atari logo on the side of a building. 
a company that hasn't been relevant since, well, since about the time the original Blade Runner was released. But while it can be fun to carp about such things, which is largely why I do it, these really are minor issues in comparison to an otherwise very, very enjoyable, if flawed film that also happens to be an order of magnitude better than the film it is a sequel to. Definitely one to watch. Probably as good a time as any to insert what Craig sent over uh, as part of this. He says that Harrison Ford nearly made me cry. That's nothing to do with the movie. He stole my lunch money in primary too. Apart from that, and having seen it twice now to hopefully enforce some objectivity, it's not a perfect movie, but it is the perfect Blade Runner sequel. Oh, and he really hopes that they quit while they're ahead and don't make another one now, which, based on box office performance, they probably wouldn't consider doing it in the modern market anyway. And uh, I think the first point there was what I was trying to get at, not Harrison Ford stealing <laughs> much money, but um, it is very much its father's son. To the extent that if anyone liked the original Blade Runner, then of course they will like this. The second point that Craig makes is also perhaps valid in as much as it's something I would like to get to. If you didn't like or just haven't seen the original Blade Runner, which is perfectly possible, we're generations now on from that film's release and the yeah. has got the rep, it's still cult. Yeah, which was not commercially successful at its time. Yeah, so there's generations who will not have seen this, and the marketing to get people to see this has been disastrous, and I'm pretty convinced that's why it's had some terrible word of mouth, uh, because they've pulled the same trick they tried with Watchmen, which was to say that they've produced trailers for an entirely different to film to what Blade Runner 2049 is. Uh, I mean, there's, what, three action scenes in the whole film, if I recall correctly? That's probably about right. And to be honest, Phil, those sequences only really seemed to be there so you could stitch them into a trailer. And that's what's happened. There's a few of the kind of abstract shots and then these action-packed sequences to kind of give you a trailer that's got a thumping action rhythm that thinks, oh, well, I'll like that because it's sci-fi. And then, then you get to it and it's a two-and-a-half-hour ponderous thought piece for the most part. And that's great. I do love it. But it's been wildly missold. Yeah, so because you want to mention to me you're talking at the moment about the action sequences, Scott, yeah, because there are only a couple, really. They really just sort of punctuate the the fairly ponderous nature, as you say. Like particularly the Las Vegas one, when you see the um, spinners arrive, and like because it's been it's largely been dialogue up to that point. There's one kind of like sharp stab of action, and it goes back to dialogue and the ponderous nature. Mm. And if you focus on that in your trailer, then you are you're doing both the customers and yourself at a service. And I I don't understand the point of misleading trailers. Yeah, the one. Uh, I can't remember now, actually, but I went to check it was in the trailers or not, but the, the scene that stood out particularly for me was the bit when he l lands in San Diego, when he's just investigating the, uh, let's call it an orphanage. <laughs> yeah, yes, for, for uh, want of a better word, yes. where, uh, work, well, workhouse might work, actually. Yeah, let's so go, let's go Dickensian and Victorian, <laughs> workhouse. Yeah, and then he's, he's sort of set upon by a crowd, and then you're replicant fellow I love just unleashes an orbital bombardment from nowhere and then it's never referred to again not even so much as as, as Gosling sort of picking himself up dusting himself for going oh well that was a bit strange wasn't it oh, but I was certainly wasn't expecting an orbital bombardment to occur but yes. it has yes, he doesn't great. question that at any point at all so, yeah. well, well that, that was convenient I'll just carry on about my day then shall I <laughs> So, I mean, these are that, that is very much the points where it's at its weakest, is where it's trying to be something that it plainly isn't. But when it's embracing its nature, um, Blade Runner is an exceptionally powerful film. All I can think of, it, it's, it's the visuals of it, as you say, the whole uh, cinematography stuff is so overwhelming on a big screen that, it's, uh, mm -hmm. that it really just 
batters you into submission in a in a very good way. And it's the sort of film that I think deserves to be seen at a cinema. Um, unfortunately, I don't think you'll get the same experience as you do at home. I, I, I kind of say that because the last time I felt something like this in a cinema was actually uh, Mad Max. Fury Road, mm-hmm. which had a similar sort of overwhelming, you know, the visual aspects of it all were just so uh, powerful. And any time I've gone back to it in home formats, I've still enjoyed it, but it's certainly nothing like that experience that you've got from the first time just watching it on a big screen. Yeah, um, even from the from the very opening scene with that sort of with Ryan Gosling coming out of the mist and because mm-hmm. it's so it's such a striking thing. And it, it actually reminded me a little of Parts of Arrival. Yeah, Denis Villeneuve's last film, but just that and just the way it just slowly lingers on that and it just and you just kind of get completely kind of overwhelmed by that thing and that because you're looking at it on a 10 meter high screen yeah it's just not going to be the same on a tv it's yeah. not it's 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 just this massive thing with these beautiful beautiful visuals where the director has the um and his dop but the director has the the strength to know that no that you i'm not going to cut to this I'm not going to and it's not going to bore you but you just take this in observe this this slow brooding thing with beautiful visuals and i i think yeah there's it does need to be seen in a cinema to really appreciate that yeah and it did sort of make me think back to the, the original film as well as it would i have i mean i i like blade runner quite a bit but it's not my not my, not one of my top 10 films but um maybe i would feel differently had i seen it on a big screen because the similar similar arguments would apply to that as well i think but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. What we can say is that this new version of Blade Runner 2049 is absolutely definitely worth your time. Uh, I mean, the one thing we've not really hit upon is how it's continued uh, the themes that uh, Philip K. Dick would be so so happy to see, I think, in this one, because it, it explores the, his bet noirs as much as any any other film that has been produced based on his work. Uh, it, 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 at the same time, it's not actually bludging you over the head with them. You know, very clearly, the, the driving narrative is the you know the, the mystery of what where this replicant's uh, child is and the, trying to work that out. But it's also just working in parts of you know what does it mean to be human or a replicant? What makes a replicant different from a human? Uh, it's not sort of stopping to arbitrarily point out these things to you, even when Jared Leto's kind of trying to come with those points, it, it's just kind of working them in fairly organically. Uh, the relationship that uh, Kay has with his computer, well, his, his computer, really. Uh, yes. Because the, the, the generated it's... persona that that's got is obviously another major a- axis of it, um, mm, which yes. explores that just accidentally much better than Hair did. And that whole film, Hair, was about that theme. So Yeah, um, Hair is very much what came to mind during the sequences with Anna de Armas. Her the character Joy, um, I think, but maybe because it, I think you and I both had the same criticism of her, Scott, that that wasn't really about a relationship with something that wasn't human. It was basically about a long distance relationship. Yeah. Whereas the relationship with Kay and Joy in Blade Runner twenty forty nine really is about like a relationship that isn't because there's no tangibility, but the person is there and, and yeah. uh, yes, but yes, and even as being part of a film and a relatively small part of a film it does a much better job than that whole film her did yeah yeah so again it's just covering i guess identity is probably as good a summation as i can think of from the recurring uh, philip k dick themes but yeah in terms of just talking about your identity or identities of people in particular it does a, a great job of kind of working all that in thematically without really uh bludgeoning you with it or pointing anything out obviously other than that, I agree with him when you're saying, I think Jared Leto was a weak point. Uh, say the, the character, I suppose, needs to be there, I 
guess maybe, but not the way that it's done here. It just seems, it just seems kind of willfully abstract the way they've decided to play mm. that character. Um, no, weird which, for the sake of being weird, really. Yeah, I mean, there's look, there, there's some weird CEOs about, but most of them seem like they would function as human beings, whereas Leto's character in this kind of doesn't. He's just, you know, he's a step away from, well, to be honest, he is a Bond villain. He, he's, he's playing more from the Bond villain kind of uh, trope of books than he is from being a human being. You know, it's not like, you know, I don't know, he almost feels more like, I can see where you're coming from with the Bond villain a bit, but maybe with a bit of like John Doe from Seven or something. <laughs> <laughs> but And I don't really understand the, he's not given enough time. He's only in, what, like four scenes maybe. Um, and it doesn't have as many as that. It could only be two, to be honest. Um, it it doesn't really have any motivation, and I wasn't really quite sure what he was. I wasn't really quite sure what his angle was for a lot of it. But I guess I think maybe I missed something at the start because the whole another little niggle. They don't like the whole wall of text you get at the start of it, kind of explaining what happened in between films. That was a bit, that seemed a bit lazy, but I can kind of understand why they needed to do it. But uh, it it seemed to say, yeah, replicants were illegal, but they're still just replicants and they're making them and i'm not yeah. sure why you, no, it just just because i actually thought that wall of text there was was there more to mirror the first film because that's how the first film begins as well that's true um i assumed that was why it was there it was more to kind of match how the first film began with with a small bit of additional information that there are now these nexus 8 models that are not allowed on earth anymore it's more mm. chaos with an open-ended lifespan but i assume because th- really the reason he seems to want the child is because they can't make enough replicants and that them being able to have sex and reproduce would allow them to make more. So therefore, it's just about money, which is always dull, but at least believable. Mm. But that just means that he's a typical CEO who wants his business to make money, but he just happens to be a psychopath at the same time for the way he treats that replicant that he's brought in. Yeah, and what I don't get is, I mean, I, I don't know what the process is. None of it's obviously explained, but or even what the whole replicant life cycle would be, but assuming that it's roughly the same as humans at a push, nine months to build, as opposed to what they're doing just now. I, 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 you know, maybe he's worked out the economic case, but we don't get to see that PowerPoint presentation, is all I'm saying. So we don't know the validity of what he's coming out with. So it's all just a bit wishy-washy. Um, and then it just seems to be an excuse of a, a psychopath th- uh, yeah. <laughs> to throw it into the mix to keep things up, because like, we need a Roy Batty replacement. There you go. That'll do. <laughs> Job done. And I'm going to stop sort of picking niggles with it because I'm I'm, begin- I'm aware that I'm beginning to sound awfully negative about a film that I really, really enjoyed and will have contending for my film of the year. Um, <laughs> let's, let's go back to just saying it's an incredibly engaging story. It's well acted, looks absolutely gorgeous and is an incredibly powerful work uh, and made me think quite a lot about a number of themes coming out of it and what more can you ask for in a major blockbuster uh, delivers uh, far better visually and mentally than any other tentpole release that I've seen probably this decade and is just a great film. Yes, lovely. I love it. I have my problems with it, of course, but let's uh, let's focus on the positive for a while. Um, yes, it's, it's absolutely worth seeing and if you've not done it already, you really need to go and see it before it vanishes out of cinemas and definitely does not deserve to be the relative flop that it is uh, seems to be becoming uh, another one we might have to hope that China saves if we ever want to see anything uh, similarly themed in future so yes uh, yes go support your local 
the revenue from. So Scott, I believe we have a a few articles of feedback on Twitter. Bit of a thread going on, which I'll try and condense a little bit, just because I think we've covered actually most of the points there between um, well, you, me, Craig, Zach Burns, that's uh, at Zach Burns eighteen, and Nathan Dodd at Nathan Dodd ninety three on. Uh, a bully runner 2049 and largely it's about Jared Leto uh, Zach Burns was the first to chime in that uh, controversial to say anything negative about Blade Runner at the moment but Jared Leto was quite poor acting and character wise which we've kind of discovered as well uh, Nathan Dodd agrees uh, I make that point about the eyes and uh, yeah, partly his fault and partly the fault of the director it's the direction that the character it's as if the only direction for that character was be vague and weird uh, which Zach thinks is frustrating because he's so fantastic in Dallas Buyers Club. But in this and in Suicide Squad, he's a bit of a hack, I think. doesn't understand the character in the slightest and little development and his motives are very two-dimensional, uh, which I think is more or less what we're saying. In that, he does feel that if the cinematography and ambience of the film is outstanding, but the narrative is a little weak, which I don't quite agree with that. And the rest of the rest of the moment kind of picks up, I think. He thinks it's a little harsh, but if it wasn't surrounded by such a jaw-droppingly beautiful film and cast, would it stand up? Mm. Perhaps not, but we're fortunate enough to live in a world where this is a thing. So it's uh, you're probably true. If you, if this was done worse, it would be a worse film. But that's a bit of a truism of anything, isn't it? It kind of goes on, but I think that's that's probably the salient points there. Uh, with Nathan Dodd kind of agreeing that uh, the role needed a completely different actor and direction in general. Um, I As just, we think, possibly no, no actor or role. Yeah, in I'd argue that the, that that entire yeah. role can be reduced to two lines in a, another character's mouth. It's <laughs> like, yeah, my boss needs this. There we go. That's there's your motivation, and there's no need for any stories about a tedious actor doing stupid yeah. method. It's like I can't see <laughs> when, especially when it's the fact the character can't see is pretty much irrelevant to the character and it's not entirely obvious for the most part that he can't see yes and maybe the, the only lucky thing was if he can't see he couldn't have seen the grand martarkin like cgi abomination <laughs> <laughs> and i guess the other standout moment from that thread is the terrifying nightmare scenario that nathan brings up of jimmy savile could have been resurrected as a replicant for all we know and what a, what a nightmarish vision of a dystopian future that is populated entirely by rampaging jimmy savile's <laughs> now then now then. <laughs> and also uh, Matt Toller. Uh, these tweets are okay. <laughs> That's at M. Toller. Of these, only Blade Runner 2049 was on this list and he hasn't made out to see it yet. But you should, we entreat you to do so. Yes, um, yes Matt. Um, availability. While there's any chance of it still being in the cinema, go and see it. Uh, you're going to get the best enjoyment out of this on a really big screen. At least much bigger than a TV screen anyhow. Yes. Um, and also... We were pleased when you upgraded yourself from low quality tweets to these tweets are okay. So we, we look forward to the next stage of revolution. Yes. Like, you know what? These tweets are good. Yes. I'm cutting the mustard, damn it. <laughs> yes, I think that, that will take us out for today. So I guess we will wrap things up. And just, just to say we'll be back in a mere 10 or so days with uh, probably if a look on journalism and film, if we can get around to recording it. Uh, which we'll be... I'm very much looking forward to talking about Entranced Earth. Uh, I'm looking forward yes. to um, talking about Entranced Earth because I'm hoping you can tell me what I watched because <laughs> I still don't know several weeks later. <laughs> yeah, so uh, some some interesting films that we're talking about, just as a little teaser there, but that's coming up in the future for today. We will just sign off and thank you very much for your attention. If you do want to get in touch with us for any reason, do so. Uh, go to your Twitter machine. 
and go look us up at at Film. go to your Facebook machine go to facebook.com slash Film, or go to your email machine uh, and you should probably look at getting those machines combined them yes, one want to consolidate those machines yeah. that's just unwieldy you don't have enough pockets <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so you can email us podcast at fudsonfilm.com. Yes, so until next time, thank you very much for your attention. I've been Scott Morris, and I'll see you soon. And I'm sure Ruth Ambiel will wish you a farewell. Hasta luego. Goodbye.